With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Rich here. A quick note before we start. Next week, we're going to have a new look and a slightly new name for the show. Look for This Is Success in your feed next Friday. You may know Bethany Frankel from her lead role on The Real Housewives of New York. I didn't want to be on the show. I thought it was going to be a bunch of drunk people acting crazy and a disaster, and it it was, and I ended up making money off of that. This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Rich Filoni. Frankel's name is the driving force behind an expanding empire of brands. She's the brain behind Skinny Girl Cocktails, a company she sold in 2011 for a tidy $100 million. And in her spare time, she runs Be Strong, a charity that gave disaster relief to Puerto Ricans after Hurricane Maria. Frankel told me she doesn't always have a grand plan, but she knows a good opportunity when she sees one. And she's been taking advantage of life's curveballs since she was a kid, growing up around racetracks throughout the state of New York. Her parents weren't always around, so she learned how to look out for herself. I mean, I grew up in a very crazy, in a very crazy household, in a very crazy life at the racetrack. I don't think some some show with a bunch of morons fighting over who knows what is going to rattle me. I was never worried about the being on television. I was never worried about the task at hand. I was cut out for that because I'm cut out for anything. But monetizing the experience, I I don't know how anybody didn't think of it first. When do you think that you had that kind of like first within you that like you need to make something that has impact? You need to like get out there and change things? I don't think I think of it that way. I just do. I'm not as much of a thinker about it as I am a doer about it. So I'll have the idea and then I'll go and do it. I don't spend a lot of time sitting around just with the in the plan. I, I, I build the plane while I'm flying it. Once the idea is born, that's when really my brain starts flying with all the ideas and late at night and adding ideas and thinking about how things can be changed and different and and products and formulations and taglines. And that's when the hamster wheel really starts to get going once the match gets lit. Did you have any indications that this was a path that you would end up on when you were a kid? um, I've always had an entrepreneurial streak in me. In high school, we wanted to be able to have this big sort of nightclub party. And so I rented out a space and charged the people in my senior class to get into that space and had a nightclub. When I was 13, I think, I wanted to have a party at my house. And so I worked at a bakery first to be able to pay for the party. And then I ended up also charging guests to come because it was an expensive party and I'd have to pay for all the cleanups and my parents didn't <laughs> kill me at the time. So you um, even used like a high school party as a like a business opportunity? Yes. <laughs> and I did later. I worked at a clothing store in New York City. I've worked as a hostess. I've worked as a waitress. I worked 
later as a natural food chef running um, different restaurants. I've done healthy meals delivered to people's homes. I was always hustling. I was always always figuring out some way to just get by. It wasn't, you know, that I was really making any money. I used to sell pashminas. I had I was one of the largest importers of pashmina. So in the scarves. World. I, I discovered these pashmina shawls, which were these coveted items that no most people didn't even know what they were, including myself. And I took a very risky move and sent $6,000 that I did not have to India to a stranger. And by the time that my multicolored pashminas arrived, I had had them all sold in orders for more to celebrities like Salma Hayek and Susan Sarandon and Julia Roberts and Kevin Costner for uh, his girlfriend, his wife, or somebody like that. I was selling them to everybody at these pashmina parties. And then I had to take that to the next level and get a booth at the Magic Show, which is the apparel show in Vegas. And then I started distributing them to stores. And I always had to take everything to a 10. And not everything worked. I, I expanded too quickly in the princess pashmina business. But I always had to take everything to a 10. I, I, I take it to the edge. Just my body's in motion. I'm just going for it, yes. Yeah. And stepping back a little bit too, you've spoken a lot about your childhood and that it could be rough at times. Um, could you kind of explain that and how that shaped you? Um, I don't know that I thought that it was rough. I just know now that it was rough thinking back about it. I mean, I've seen abuse, alcoholism, eating disorders, lived at the racetrack, didn't really have any rules, was at nightclubs when I you, was Your there. father was a, a race my, uh, racehorse both owner? My father and my stepfather were race. Uh, horse trainers. My mother was an exercise rider. Her father was a horse trainer. So I grew up at the racetrack, going to the betting windows when I was young, going to nightclubs by the, you know, when I was 13 and 14. So I you know, had a very unusual childhood. I used to go into the city from Long Island by myself when I was 14 years old to go to the Palladium. But I was always responsible, as weird as that sounds. I was an adult as a child. I, I saw so much as a very young child that I think it matured me in an unnatural and unusual way. How did that result in who you became as an adult? I don't know. I growing up the racetrack is a very action filled place. I mean, you know, it's it's gambling is is the base, and I'm definitely a risk taker and a gambler. And people call me fearless. So I think the upstairs downstairs of the racetrack there are wealthy, you know, sheiks and blue bloods and, you know, people with last names like Firestone and Whitney and Vanderbilt. And then there are the people on the backside where I would hang out and who feed the horses. So having a horse trainer as a father, you kind of rode both lines. You would be working for an owner who was really super rich, would be over in the boxes and in the paddock and then working with the grooms and the hot walkers by the shed row. How did that impact you being in both of those worlds? Just seeing highs and lows, seeing, you know, I can handle being in any situation. I can handle being with, you know, I could handle being in a room with royalty and I could also handle being in a room with the grooms that, you know, have nothing. So I think I'm a very high, low type of person. So you went to NYU, right? I went to MBU and then NYU. Okay. After you graduated college, you went to LA. What were you going for? I wanted to be near the entertainment industry. I wanted to be an actress. I ended up meeting incredible people, not from being an actress. That was the most powerless gig you could ever have. You have no power over anything. You're looked down on because you seem like you must be desperate and you know people know you don't have any money and you, you don't, you're not in medical school or working at a job where you have any upper mobility. You're just a person who's asking somebody else for something at all times. And I'm not into that. 
you're auditioning to try to get somebody like you and try to be something that somebody else wants you to be. And I wasn't for any of that. That did yeah. not work for me. I needed to be in the power position. Yeah. So what attracted you specifically to the entertainment world as opposed to having power in, say, Wall Street or something like that? I didn't know anything about Wall Street. I didn't know anything about numbers. For years, people have told me I would have been an excellent trader. But I didn't know anything about it. I had no interest in it. I would have been a great lawyer, but I didn't want to go to school for more years. I didn't want to be a doctor. So entertainment seemed like something. I had some access there. I had some connection to L.A. And I didn't have a big plan. This wasn't a big plan. So in 2005, you ended up on The Apprentice when Martha Stewart was hosting it. How did that come about? I didn't end up on The Apprentice. I fought to get on The Apprentice because I had made a bet with somebody who said to me that there's this show with Donald Trump and these people and they're competing and they're selling lemonade and there's these tasks that you do. And I said, oh, my God, I would be great on that show. What is that show? And the guy said, I'll get on the show. He said, you're not getting on that show. You would never get on that show. And I said to him, mark my words, I'll get on that show. At this time, I created Bethany Bakes, which was a wheat, egg and dairy cookie company because I was a natural food chef working at a restaurant in New York. I didn't know how to tape myself. And I said to my partner, can you go buy the least expensive, lightest video camera? And can you videotape me? So videotape me selling cookies. And I sent it into The Apprentice and they called. And I went through the process of trying to get on The Apprentice seasons two and three, which I did not make. And I kept in touch with the casting people without annoying them. And I just kept connecting with them. And Evidently, they were saving me for the Martha Stewart Apprentice. And that was how I got on the Martha Stewart Apprentice, which I wanted so badly and I took so seriously. And I was broke and I needed the job. So when you're looking to get on here, did you see it as this is an opportunity to get on television, sell products, or this was just be a a chance to get things going? I think the Trump Apprentice was about the hustle, just I'm a hustler and I think I would be good at that. It's like a scavenger hunt or something. I think I I would be good at that. And then when it got down to being Martha Stewart, I wanted to democratize health the way that she did style. I, was, I wanted to be a natural food chef. I wanted to be a chef on television. I was very specific about what I wanted to do. And this was me planning to monetize what I do long before anybody has ever done that. Everybody was just there to win the money, but no one was talking about what they were doing or what their dreams and hopes or some product or anything. So that was like an un just an unknown concept, which makes no sense because I can't imagine exposing yourself to reality TV and that kind of scrutiny and just drama and toxic behavior without having an upside. So it sounds like there was a direct line between that apprentice appearance in Real Housewives of New York City. No, there was definitely not a there direct wasn't. line, not at all. The, the, real, the, the Apprentice, Martha Stewart, got 11 million viewers, which was a bomb at the time. So then I used it as a dry as sponge to try to squeeze out the liquid of it for a little bit of press and something. And it's not that easy. So it was, oh, I've, you know, cooked with Paris and Nikki. Uh, you know, I probably made them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich once. But I've cooked for Paris and Nikki. I cooked for Mariska Hargitay and Chris Maloney on the set of Law & Order, which I brought them food sometimes. You know, it was me trying to really work this thing because no one was getting any press from it. And so I remember I got a spread in life and style. And my big moment was I got a a segment with Hoda about your food personality, the emotionality of food. And I did that on the Today Show. I was I, I was I had my cards. I was so prepared. Now I don't prepare for anything. I did the segment. It seemed like it went well. I passed out, which I don't even ever sleep. I was just so, you know, prepared and my brain just went in overload. You actually fainted? 
No, I just came home and I slept. Oh, I just okay. don't ever sleep. I passed out like for a nap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, it's not my personality. And then I was just always hustling. I was hustling my, my cookies and hustling, trying to be a chef, trying to get on the Food Network. I was at the sport event Polo in the Hamptons. And someone came up to me and said, you know, the, we're here we're trying to look for a fifth wife. Bravo wanted five moms for a show called Manhattan Moms. They wanted them to be wealthy and aspirational and trying to get their kids into private schools, you know, hard to get into private schools. And the production company was happy with the four that they had, and they had already started filming. And Bravo said, we're not going to film, and we're not going to continue the show, and the show will get shut down unless you find the fifth. So they had four women that were sort of seemingly wealthy and a little flashy in the Hamptons, and not quite socialites, because socialites, like, shudder at the thought that the housewives would be anything close to what a real socialite is, whatever the hell that means, because they don't do anything. But at that day, they said the producers were there, and they ran into me, and I had a boyfriend that we weren't even close to getting married, and I wasn't close to having kids, and I wasn't close to having any money. I had $8,000 to my name. And they met me, and they wanted me. And it was so funny, because I was nothing like any of the other women and nothing like any of the mandate for who to cast. So they pursued me, and I said no. And a month later, I said, you know, it's not that easy to get on television, and maybe I should give this a try, because if no one watches, then no one will care, and if everyone watches, then it could be a success, and I am a natural food chef, and I did want to get on the Food Network, but maybe this is some sort of a circuitous route. So I thought, what the hell? And in the meantime... Andy Cohen was against it because they didn't want someone who had a pre-existing television experience. Now they'll put actresses on, but at that time he wasn't into it. So Andy Cohen from Bravo, and he was one of the producers on the show? He was an executive producer. He was a development executive at the time, and he was against it because he just thought that we don't want someone who's already been on television. So I don't know. That casting tape must have been pretty compelling because they put me on anyway. Why did you want to be on the show so badly? I didn't want to be on the show. You didn't. I didn't want to be on the show. No. I thought it was going to be a bunch of drunk people acting crazy and a disaster, and it, it was, and I ended up making money off of that, those drunk people. But it was because I, at that time, people didn't do two reality shows. You wouldn't be on The Apprentice and then be on that show. Now it's like you could do 10 reality shows. At that time, that was like, wait, this loser is doing that reality show, then this reality show. She's now the reality show girl. I wanted to be credible. I wanted to be on a cooking show about being a natural food chef. But I thought it's not that easy to get on television and find a platform to monetize what you're doing. And over here, maybe I can focus on the fact that I'm a natural food chef. And something just told me. Something just told me to try it. I remember where I was in the Hamptons. I remember... I can remember it like it was yesterday. I remember looking at the contract. I remember it saying $7,250 for the entire season. Wow. Includes every single thing from makeup to wardrobe to location fee to everything. And I remember crossing out where it, it said that I would give any part of any of my business. The only thing I said was I'm not giving any of my business. I'll do it, but I'll get paid whatever. But I'm not giving anything that I ever do, which became the Bethany Clause, <laughs> which is why, now called the Bethany Clause. Why were they paying so little? I mean, the show had no budget. I mean, there was no budget, and people don't get paid a lot when they go on reality television. A lot more than that now. Probably, if you start, you can get 10 times that. But it was an unproven concept. There was one Orange County Housewives show that had, you know, fine, average ratings. And 
it was $7,250 for the whole season. So when you signed that, were you just saying, this is my chance to sell my products to no, a large I, audience? I wasn't. I was just signing it and I was just doing it. And the man that I was with said to me, you shouldn't be filming at all when you're not cooking. And I thought that sounded reasonable. And then you get into the show and you're talking and you're living and you're interacting. And it's about a lot more than food. And I decided, I made a conscious decision. I remember that call to my friend at the time saying, what do I do? Do I not discuss that? Do I not do this? And it was like early in it was before even the first episode was made and I just decided if I'm doing this I owe it to this audience to be honest and open about everything and just go for it and so that you know I was totally honest and open about everything and I went for it how can you be authentic when you have uh, like a camera crew around you and you have producers trying to follow a narrative? Well, the producers aren't in the same room. You do have cameras, but I've been doing this for so long. I did it on The Apprentice and The Apprentice, they hide. They're not like you don't, you're literally, they don't even speak to you. You're literally props. So you get used to that sort of skill set. Maybe maybe I'm different because of that. That was like boot camp training. Just cameras do not exist. You, you felt prepared think. already. But I never think about the cameras. I just don't. I'm I'm used to it. You know, it's just a weird skill set and I feel totally natural with it. And it's always truthful from my perspective. It's always real and it's not manufactured. It's just what's going on. And it, but it's what's going on within those people. You know what I mean? So people will say, oh, um, is it real? Would you really have that conversation? Like, I, if I weren't on this show with these seven women, would I have that exact conversation? No. But if I weren't in this room with you, I wouldn't have this exact conversation either. So it's like that's the show that I'm on with these people. This is who I'm having lunch with. This is who I'm you know, interacting with. And these are the conversations that I'm having with these people. Is that person in front of the camera a, a different person from who you are, like around your family or your friends in private? I don't think so, no. Because I can be very tough on the show and very nice on the show. And I can be very tough in my other life and very nice. You don't see me as a mother, which is when I'm definitely my happiest, my softest, my most selfless, you know, with my dogs too. So you don't really see that. You don't get to see what I really am like in a relationship. You just can imagine that it's like this, you know, Cruella DeVille, like, you know, whipping (laughs) whoever I'm in a relationship with, which it's not like that at all. I'm a pretty good partner. So you don't get to see everything, which is okay. It was good for me. You know, you don't have to show every single thing. At what point on the show did you realize that okay, this is actually going to be a, a chance where I could build a business. I knew that I was going to get a spinoff. I don't know why. I just knew it. I knew it early on. I think I knew it in the first season. I could just feel it. I felt different, to be honest. I felt different. How do you um, mean? I just understood what was going on. I was, I mean, Andy Cohen called me the Greek chorus and the narrator. I don't think he says that anymore because I don't think anyone would like him to say that anymore. But I, <laughs> I was able to connect to that audience and understand that they don't understand what it's like to pack a car to go to the Hamptons and that you're literally packing like you're moving to Croatia to drive two hours to see everybody that you already know that you probably saw this morning at the bagel store on the way there. So it's just like, you know, it's like a satire. And so I think that I had this way of connecting and, na- you know, narrating and um, commenting And I just, I knew that I was a valuable asset in this just because I'm an honest storyteller and there's a lot of comedy along the way. And on the show, I mean, on the show and when you had a a spinoff, you shared like some really intimate moments such as insights into your pregnancy, the birth of your daughter, your relationship. Did it ever feel like a sacrifice? Um, 
yes, it's felt like a sacrifice, but for, you know, it's a very high paid sacrifice, you know, it's, it's a job and you're not always comfortable at your job. I mean, I'm very lucky to have this job. If I were in a coal mine or working in asbestos or, you know, I would be not like my job. Maybe I'd be, you know, so it's sort of like this week sucks. I look like crap on the show physically, mentally. I said something stupid that everybody doesn't like their job all the time. It is real. It is my interaction, but I am being paid. And also, you know, you'd rather have the who I really am than than me faking it. Many people, and I, I know exactly who they are, that are on these shows that are kind of acting. They're being their best self. They're saying what they think they should say. They're saying what the viewer would want them to say. I don't do that. I say what I really feel, and sometimes people get pissed off because sometimes what I say could piss people off, but that's what I really was feeling, so I'm giving it to you real. You may not like it, but it's how I really feel about it. I've actually seen a, a bunch of the, the show now, and I mean, things could get pretty crazy. Did you ever feel like maybe, I don't know, if there was a crazy fight or just something really silly on the show that that could negatively impact your business? There are a lot of things that could negatively impact your business. You don't get paid this to not take risks, and it's very scary. And I wonder when the ride will stop, and I don't think it will be very long before the ride stops because I've done incredibly well. It's I have so much more to risk than when I started. You know, I have partners that are multi-billion dollar corporations. I can't screw around. And this is a big juggernaut business now. By the same token, the, the show helps this big juggernaut business. So there's a fine line. In doing deals, have you ever had to defend yourself for being on a show that could get like pretty crazy sometimes? I think I've transcended the having to defend the show because of all the amazing success that I've created despite the show and the relief efforts. And well, the what about that before that? Before that, who cared? I was nobody. What am I defending? At what point did you realize that you didn't have to scrape by anymore? When I was on the cover of Forbes and, and made that money from the Skinny Girl cocktail. So I, it was like 2011? Yeah, but I don't even know that I... I guess I intellectually knew it, but I didn't feel it. It took me a while to start purchasing things and paying, you know, expensive bills for things that would I would have cringed at then. I mean, just like today, I got a bill for $4,300 for my pool heater. Yesterday, it was $5,000 to fix some paint. Like, when you get buy houses and you get into another level, every day it's something expensive. And, and literally before the housewives, I, I would have been crying in a, in a corner for a $4,000 pool heater bill. I didn't have a pool to heat. But <laughs> if there were any sort of bill that came for $4,000, I would have broke me. I would have I would have been hysterically crying. So the it's very strange to live in a world where you could just get a bill for a pool heater for $4,300 like, like, like you ate a sandwich and that would have killed you. Not so long ago. Did getting a level of success and money, did that change your ambitions at all? You know, it's a bigger it's bigger game hunting now. But by the same token, I know that I don't have to do any of the things that I'm doing. And it gives me a freedom. And it gives me an exit strategy if I want it. But I haven't really done everything that I want to do in business. And I look at business for myself and I guess a little bit reality TV as when the tables are hot, you press your bets. So right now the tables are hot, Knockwood, and when they, if they go cold, I'll walk. That's how I feel. I don't want to be mentally stressed and unhappy, and I have moments on Real Housewives where I feel that way. And I think to myself, is this really worth it? And I'm balancing weighing the options and, and, and how long I should do it for. So it's, a, it's always a back-and-forth conversation. Would you ever sell the Skinny Girl brand itself? Maybe. Depends on the number. People have circled. I've just had someone circle 
just some had someone offer and we almost it'd have to be the right number and the right strategic partner when i'm looking at uh what you've been saying it, it seems like having total control of your brand is very important to you but skinny girl is that just an element of it it's like you'd be able to do something else after 100 percent. there's the brand of bethany there's the b brand there's the brand of just me being a woman and a mother and an entrepreneur i mean it could be called anything and in this case i own 100 percent of it it's a great feeling and, and where does real housewives factor into this now you're established you have your brand what do you want to get from the show at this point I still love this audience so much. I mean, it's just, you know, this is my audience. I can be in a restaurant, I can be in a mall, and I can look at somebody and I know that they're, they watch, that they know who I am. I know that we connect. I know it's, a, you know, a mom who is multitasking, trying to work, trying to get their kids to school, who's a certain age, who wants to be a little healthy, is just trying to, like, look okay to get through the day and not overly spoiled. I know exactly who my customer is. I could literally point them out on the street. And so we connect. We have a relationship. They've helped me create one of the largest private relief efforts in history. They tell me when there's an infringement on a trademark of the skinny girl in another country. They are my people. And so I love that connection. And this this audience is connected to the housewives and they love the fodder and they can relate to this in their cul-de-sac. Something's going on that's similar at their country club, at their school, at their PTA. And how do you personally define success? I define success through my daughter. I really do. Just I'm the most happy when we've just we've connected and we've spent days together and you know How old is she now? She's eight. We call it Camp Mommy. I spend so much time with her. That's the most rewarding, fulfilling thing to feel that you're a good mother and that you're nurturing your child and reading books with them at night and she's not a very on the phone on the computer kid so I feel that that's a success because I love her just being a free range kid I want her to be in my backyard and swimming and doing things that are natural and to try to preserve any of what I had as not me I had a crazy childhood but what kids had as a child you know more natural but I have a great kid and I have a great relationship with her and to me that really is the best success. And do you have a grand vision for what you want to accomplish with your businesses? I've got a couple of things that I'm working on that are going to be monstrous. I don't want to rest on my laurels. Skinny Girl was great, but that was, you know, that was a while ago. And so let's see if I can ring the bell again and again. You know, it's been great to do so much charitable work and to be able to have the free time to do it and the means to do it. And I'd love to do more of that. I'll make, I'm going to make a lot of money and be able to give back even more. With your Be Strong charity work, when you went to Puerto Rico after the hurricane, you were one of the the first people there, along with people like Chef Jose Andres, um, before the U.S. government right. even sent relief. How did it feel to you to be there before the government was, and what compelled you to go in the first place? I was there before Trump was there, which was surprising. It was like a war zone. And it felt like there's you, you had to be completely rogue and you could do anything you wanted because nobody was there and you just it was by any means necessary. So it was just get it done. Just figure it out and get it done and just, you know, find people you can trust and, and distribute. But at that time, you could drive 15 minutes out of San Juan with a truck, just a truck, and people would line up for two hours, hundreds of people, not even knowing what was on the truck, just they were they were dying. They were literally on their roofs. They had been going back and forth from inside their house, wherever they could stand, because it was mud, like disgusting, 
crusted mud that their cars were sealed shut with mud. Their house was filled with mud. They would be waiting on the roof for water. They were rationing water. One woman, her husband, had such a tiny amount of his insulin left. And they were waiting for people to come, and no one was coming. And this wasn't two hours out of San Juan. This was 15 minutes out of San Juan. So it was insane. And were you compelled to go there just because nothing was really happening? I was compelled to go there because I had gone to Houston which I was nervous to do when people were telling me not to go. And then I went to Jujutla, Mexico by uh, helicopter, also there before their governor after a terrible earthquake. And so many people were dead and it was horrible. And then I guess I felt that like I had started this movement and it was my responsibility to go. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to have a career like yours? You have to get on the road. You can't be stuck in your plan. You can't be stuck in your story. You can't be stuck in how good you think what your idea is because everybody will tell you what you what you want to hear and, and numbers do not lie. People do. And I would say to be on the road, start the journey and get dirty and clean yourself off and take another path and get locked out and find a way to climb in another way. Like you got to get on the road and figure out what it is that you want to do, what value you add, what clicks, what doesn't. I mean, being stuck in a book isn't going to do it. Being stuck in your business plan isn't going to do it. And being obsessed with knowing exactly what you want to do at a very young age isn't going to do it either. I didn't know what I was going to do until I was in my late 30s. And I still don't even know. But literally, I didn't even wasn't even on any close path because I did so many things and traveled and had so many boyfriends and businesses, which all was an education to ultimately hone in and find out what your real passion is and what you're really great at. I didn't know any of this. So when you're you're pushing forward, did did you have a, a point where you questioned yourself, where you questioned what you were doing in the first place? Um, before getting on the Apprentice and doing the cookies and the pashminas, I definitely questioned. I had no money. I was I was I was you know trying to pay my rent, which was twenty six hundred dollars, which is like a million dollars to me now, like maybe more, and I couldn't do it, and I had to sell things and. My assistant was getting paid more than I was, and I couldn't light the match, and I was in my 30s. But I would say everything is your business. When I was in a bakery, if you're chopping Christmas trees, if you're delivering papers, if you're making coffee at your job, the people who, like, say, I've got this, I'm on it, you know, you make everything your business, you're going to make the best latte possible, those people are the people who are successful, not the people that are sitting there making $24,000 a year complaining about that they shouldn't be making coffee, that they shouldn't be doing this. They didn't go to school for this. They didn't. It's called tough shit. You know, tough shit. Do the job. Do the job. Do whatever job it is because, you know, I've done every single job. And you never know when it's going to help you and get to the next job. And just keep pushing forward. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much, Beth. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a rating and review. It really helps new people find the show. We'll be back next week with a few changes. Keep an eye out for our new look, and let us know what you think.